This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern. You're listening to Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern on KBC 790. My guest today is Helen Avery, Director of Nature Programs at the Green Finance Institute. Um, and uh, welcome to the program, Helen. Thank you for having me, Matt. Thank you. Well, uh, you know, you're coming to us from across the pond today. And, uh, you know, in honor of that, I'm, I'm wearing my Rolling Stones T-shirt. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I love it. I, I didn't actually plan that. It just kind of I guess it was in the air. We're, we're just kind <laughs> of on a, a, a UK frame of mind here. But uh, the uh, there's a lot of great work, I think, that your your institute is doing. and one of uh, one of the focuses that I saw looking at your website is that you're moving capital to the needs of society, which is a fascinating concept, and creating a green industrial revolution to create a zero carbon economy, uh, a very big job. So uh, tell us a little bit more about the Green Finance Institute and uh, what your role as the director of nature programs does uh, there. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, if we want to limit uh, global warming to uh, 1.5 degree increase only, then the investment required, um, estimates say, is somewhere between 1.6 trillion and 3.8 trillion annually um, until 2050. So uh, quite a large sum of money needs to be moved. And in, in the UK, just to sort of give you an example, just to retrofit the housing stock um, to be net zero by 2050 is going to cost £65 billion, which is, uh, I think, about $95 billion. So, you know, government funding alone is just is just not going to cut it. Um, there's just not enough to get us to stay within that two degree scenario. So we really need to mobilise private finance. So we were set up a couple of years ago, the Green Finance Institute, seeded by UK government and the City of London. And we we act as this independent entity. Um, and our role is to mobilize the finance for net zero and nature positive transition. So um, we go sector by sector, uh, transport, built environment and nature, uh, and assess the barriers to that finance and, and develop solutions to get it going. So in particular, uh, the nature funding, uh, tell us a little bit more about that piece and, and what that uh, can look like. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, we've been sort of laser focused on climate change for a few years um, and decarbonization is what we talk about. But, you know, we're facing two crises now, as I'm sure you're aware, and um, one is climate change and one is biodiversity loss. And terrifyingly, they exacerbate one another. So, um, you know, with this in mind, as moving towards this six maths extinction, um, we really need to sort of mobilize capital towards, well, really away from nature negative outcomes and towards nature positive outcomes. So there are several ways that we're working on that right now. Um, uh, that I'm happy to sort of go into more detail if you want, want to hear about it. Right. I, uh, absolutely. I, I think it's a fascinating subject because, uh, you know, my background in undergraduate degree was in economics and the, the, the classic study of economics really didn't take into account a whole lot of pollution as a part of measuring uh, good, 
societal good. It was, it was whether or not it made money. And if it right. made money, that meant it was a good business. It was a good industry. And that was the end of the analysis up until very, very recently. Did we even consider the externalities of pollution? So uh, what, uh, what is it that uh, you at the Green Finance Institute are doing to kind of put uh, the consideration of pollution into the mix when measuring whether or not something is a good investment? Yeah. Um, there are a few things we're doing. So I, I don't know if you're um, familiar. There was the Dasgupta review. It was out just earlier this year. It was um, looked at the economics of biodiversity loss. Um, and to your point, sort of showed how our economies like rely on nature, but we haven't been pricing nature in at all. Or, or rather we have, we've just given it a value of zero. Um, so we that that review made several recommendations about what needs to be done, specifically of the finance sector as well in two two of its you know it's two chapters of a 600 page <laughs> review it's a pretty big tome um to get through but it, it talked about some things they could do and we sort of looked at that in sort of three ways one is um, measuring risk um there are companies that the finance sector is funding uh, financing or investing in that have um dependencies on nature that you know just might not be there in a few years um, uh, or they also might be sort of have exposure to risk because there could be little sort of litigation risk happening. Um, well, we can all the impacts. We can all think of that. So it's like a <laughs> business. I mean, obviously, if you destroy a, a beautiful nature a, a spot, then who's going to want to go there? And then all the jobs related to that tourist industry are going to be obliterated. Right, right, absolutely. In fact, there's and there's um there's this really great um example uh, of a case about risk happening right now in in California. It's um you probably know more about this than I do. It's Nestle Waters that's now Blue Triton, I believe, and they own Poseidon. Um, they own uh, Poland Spring Water. So they're basically taking water out of a water source, natural water source, and to bottle it and sell it but it happens to be in an area that's massively impacted by drought and people have had enough. Um, so there's a cease and desist letter gone out. There's potential for fines and that particular business line or division, you know, it really runs the risk of, of going, of going bust. Um, so it's, it's, you know, we haven't sort of that, that externality, that, that water has not been priced in when a bank made a loan to this company, they weren't thinking, well, there'll be no water in 10, 15 years time or, all the local people are going to be up in arms about it. So now that bank's got a huge risk on its books if it's got a loan to that company. So we're trying to get businesses to think more about these externalities, as you say, and banks to start understanding, hang on a minute, I could have some risk here. Because the minute you get them to think in terms of risk, they'll stop financing and we'll have a whole you know, behavioral change of companies. Well, one of the things that I was uh, looking at, uh, there was... A study, I think, done by the oil companies a while back, back in the 80s, in which they had looked at the, the fact that um, they're using carbon energy would eventually uh, bring the parts per million up in the 400 range and that it would cause global warming. And so they knew it and that they didn't do anything to change their behavior. Um, and it seems as though um, that was just one example of 
them not telling their shareholders what the potential risks were for the company, uh, let alone the risk for the entire planet. Mm. Yeah. What are you encouraging companies to do to, to disclose these kinds of risks that they have to their shareholders, to their lenders? Well, there's already the um, TCFD. I don't know if, if, if you're familiar with this, but it's the Task Force for Climate-Related uh, Financial Disclosures that was set up by Mike Bloomberg um, uh, and Mark Carney, former Bank of England governor. Um, and that is sort of where companies and financial institutions are now reporting on their risks associated with climate. So that's already up and running. And then what we've been working on in conjunction with governments, uh, financial institutions from around the world, companies and multilaterals is to launch um, an equivalent for nature. So in June, the task force for nature related financial disclosures, <laughs> these acronyms kill me, TNFD, um, is going to launch. And that that is planning to sort of develop a framework to help companies assess that nature related risk and for financial institutions also to do the same. So hopefully that will create behavioral change at uh, large. It was going to take a couple of years to sort of work through, but that's where we are right now. We're, we're working with huge amount of people on this. So uh, what's your background uh, that brings you to the uh, Green Finance Institute? Um, I'm, I'm actually a journalist by background. <laughs> um, I, I was a, a sustainable finance journalist for a finance journalist for over 20 years um, and just really wanted to kind of leave the sidelines of writing about it and kind of get in it. So I, I didn't join the Green Finance Institute until the middle of middle of last year, actually. Okay. And uh, so what, uh, what do you do as the director of nature programs? Uh, what is the focus of, of your job in particular there? Sure. So I work on how we mobilize capital towards um, nature positive investments, towards nature-based solutions, maybe natural climate solutions. And, and there are a few things, as I mentioned, I work on the, the TNFD and the development of that TNFD. And the Dasgupta review I mentioned earlier, sort of doing some work with financial institutions, some of them American, um, Bank of America, JP Morgan, um, to look at how we might move those recommendations from that review forward. Um, and then finally, we do some work with the UK government and the Environment Agency around um, sort of putting catalytic capital to work to create new nature markets um, and sort of new investments in nature. So a few things going on right now. Well, I love that term, catalytic uh, capital, because that, uh, that's really what we need is a, a catalyst for change here to spawn the next uh, great green company that will help uh, solve these problems. So you're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790, my guest, Helen Avery. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute uh, talking about catalytic capital and, and how uh, we're going to change the world to a zero carbon economy, which is uh, quite an exciting topic. So join us in a, back in a minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. Uh, KBC 790, this is Matt Mattern, and our guest today is Helen Avery, Director of Nature Programs at the Green Finance Institute. And uh, Helen, uh, welcome back, and 
uh, you were talking to us about catalytic capital, and I'm uh, I'm interested in that and how are we going to transition to this zero carbon economy? What is your organization doing to uh, kind of marry up the capital necessary to put into the entrepreneur's hands to create uh, this new uh, green industrial revolution? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great sort of question. I love this sort of topic of catalytic capital. Um, so one of the sort of challenges with green investments is that um, a lot of it is just entirely new technology. And that is a risk for any investor. You know, when if you think back to the early days of solar and wind, you know, it was deemed like a really risky investment. Did you want to get into it? And so what happened back then, people sort of um, have forgotten, forgotten about now, is that there was a lot of catalytic capital in that there was concessionary capital coming in from philanthropy, from government to help sort of de-risk some of those projects and some of those technologies to act as sort of co-investor, maybe their first loss or last loss as a guarantor on some of these investments. And that's really kind of what we need now, um, again, in sort of newer technologies around, um, uh, you know, sometimes around uh, electric vehicles and some of the infrastructure, for example, but also particularly around nature. Um, you know, some of these sort of nature-based solutions, you know, investors, they're brand new. They, they don't know what the risk profile is. So you need sort of governments to stand up and say, hey, you know what, we'll co-invest with you. If it doesn't work, we'll take like the first loss. You know, they normally are going to work. <laughs> so it's not like governments are taking on a huge risk. You would assess them first. Um, but it just sort of gives a, a level of confidence to investors. And that's the kind of catalytic capital we really need at scale right now. We need governments to step up and say, let's do something smart, not just hand out money, but think about a way to crowd in private sector funding. Uh, and one way of doing that, as I say, is by de-risking or acting as like a guarantor. And so um, tell us uh, kind of what success uh, your organization is having uh, in the UK and, and across uh, national boundaries. Yeah, so I can sort of share with you about some of the work we're doing on nature. I mean, maybe that's that's sort of my my area. Um, uh, it's my colleagues who cover sort of transport and the environment and some of the other sectors. But so, for example, in nature, um, I mentioned that we're working with the Environment Agency, and um, uh, essentially they've just launched a ten million sounds tiny, doesn't it? Ten million pound fund, but it's it's catalytic capital. And the idea of that uh, money is to basically you can apply for a grant to help you build a business case for um, nature, which, um, again, you sort of, well, what does that mean? Um, so we're helping the EA sort of uh, work with projects um, to sort of apply for it. And we're sort of assessing some of the projects that are coming in. But essentially, it means like, you know, maybe if you're a farmer, um, you could be putting interventions in your field that prevent floods happening down in a village down the road. Um, now, ordinarily, government's going to pay for that, but we just don't have that kind of money. What you really need is the private sector pay for it. So what you could do is if your whole, whole bunch of farms, they say, we'll put these interventions in, it's going to stop floods happening down in that town down there. And then you would go and approach the town and see if they will pay you to put those interventions in uh, instead of the government paying you to put those interventions in. So that way you sort of got private sector financing coming in. The only problem is this hasn't been done before. And so you really need that sort of catalytic capital to help 
um, uh, or in this case, grant capital to help those um, farmers kind of figure out uh, and with the buyers of the town that's going to pay for the sort of lower cost of flooding and um, sort of come together and figure that out. And that is, uh, it sounds like very um, dry, perhaps, or not important, but it is crucial because what we forget about climate change is that all the action happens locally in community. We need to figure out a way to get finance coming in globally into sort of local solutions. So that's some of the work we're doing with the EA right there is sort of figuring out how you actually create entirely new markets from scratch, like buyers who've never bought the things they've bought before, sellers who've never sold the things they've sold before. So that's just sort of one example of a nature, um, a nature sort of problem and solution that we're working on. There's many, many projects like that, looking whether they're looking at carbon or um, water quality improvements and stuff like that. And that's just one example. But certainly uh, there are so many different areas that we need to get capital to, whether it's uh, building clean vehicles, uh, cleaner buildings, power transmission, generation, uh, nuclear power, energy efficiency. Uh, tell us, uh, is, do you, does your organization have any position as far as nuclear power and whether or not that's a, a good solution going forward or how it should get financed? You know, we don't look at energy and there's only for good reason and that there's is so much money flowing into energy right now. So I'm afraid I can't I could only tell you my personal opinions about nuclear, <laughs> um, but, but we don't have uh, we're, we're just not working in that sector. Um, as I say, for the only the reasons that there is so much money flowing in a lot of it's already tested. Um, so it doesn't need that catalytic capital right now. Although well, that makes not sense. true efficient energy. <laughs> Right. That that does make sense that there there does seem to be a lot of uh, capital going into, say, for instance, the car market already uh, in electrifying cars. And uh, I don't know if you have that as much over there. The uh, the hydrogen cars, which have been rolled out here in California. Uh, I don't know if that's a thing back in in Europe. I have not heard about hydrogen cars. I have to confess, I have only just moved back to the UK from New York and I lived there 15 years and, and didn't have an electric car there either. So, so I'm not sort of super familiar with it, but we are um, obviously working on electric vehicles. We have sort of some policies that have come in that are, um, are sort of getting rid of sort of heavier polluting cars in the next few years. Um, the, the challenge is, as I think I mentioned earlier, is the infrastructure you know, and, and how do you make that fair? How do you make sure that the charging infrastructure just isn't in wealthy neighborhoods and, and it's not um, down in, in neighborhoods where, you know, people have to get up at four in the morning and find somewhere to charge their car. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of questions around electric vehicles that we need to sort of answer really. Um, but I, I'm thrilled. I mean, I'd love to hear what your experience is in the, on the West coast, because obviously you're far streets ahead. Well, I, I don't know how much further ahead we are than than where you're at, but uh, we're working on it. And uh, I'd say that uh, rolling out the infrastructure for the hydrogen vehicles is has been challenging. We have it here in California, and it's it's uh, good enough where I can drive across the state pretty easily without uh, with finding charging station or uh, fueling stations. Um, but it took it took a fair number of years to kind of get that rolled out. So uh, and fortunately, private 
we did have the catalytic capital. Uh, we had some government funding, but then in private industry came in and they, they kind of had a partnership between government and um, the car companies and the energy providers, the hydrogen providers, and they created a market. And now they have a, a functioning market where the, the providers of the uh, gas are getting paid. I mean, so it's working, I believe, for them and it's working for the car companies. So, I mean, it took a little bit of a nudge to get it going from the government. But once it once it uh, got that nudge, um, the market then kicked in and, and we have really a market driven solution to the problem, which I think is what uh, you're talking about as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal, isn't it? If it, you don't you don't want government capital to come in, get something going and stay there. That would be distorting markets. You want them in and then out. <laughs> Thanks very much. And then the market takes over. As you say, the demand's there and uh, competition kicks in and technology kicks in and off we go. Well, I guess that's the question is uh, where does the Green Finance Institute stand in terms of finding out where those uh, creating a a platform that makes sense where the, the right formula for government um, capital, private capital, philanthropy, where, how do we create these uh, new models? I mean, it's a really good question. How do you find that fine line between how much um, sort of catalytic capital, the philanthropic, the government money is, is enough and not too much? And I, I don't think we, we do actually know. Um, at the moment, certainly not in some of these really new markets. Um, I mean, the way we do it is that we do it by coalition. So we get together as many people as we can from across sectors, including civil society and government and private sector and finance um, academia and science, and get them through a series of workshops of saying, you know, what are the barriers, what needs to be done, and kind of figuring it all out together. Because I think if we want to solve some of well, if we want to solve the problems that we have, it has to be kind of in that collaborative manner right now, um, rather than just saying the government knows best or a private sector knows best. I mean, you know, just, it's just not going to happen. So um, that, that's the way we do it. It's sort of by these sort of really in-depth, deep dive coalitions. Well, that uh, sounds like uh, important work and something that we all need to kind of be engaged in. It's It's not just one group and i've been uh, certainly a proponent of that and and that's uh that we all need to be a part of this solution so uh you're listening to unite and heal america on kbc 790 uh our guest uh, helen avery the director of nature programs at the green finance institute doing some great work there and uh, we'll be back in just a minute talking about uh, creating a zero carbon economy and a green industrial revolution. You're listening to Unite and Heal America, KBC 790, your host, uh, Matt Mattern, and uh, our guest, Helen Avery, Director of Nature Programs at the Green Finance Institute. Helen, uh, I wanted to kind of pivot and start talking about uh, pension funds and how we can direct some of that money, which is literally trillions of dollars, to be invested into uh, creating this uh, new green industrial revolution. Yeah, I mean, really, that's that's what we need to get moving, isn't it? That's where all, that's where the sort of lion's share of the money is that will really, really make a difference. 
Um, and it's challenging because, you know, the pension funds will say, we're all ready. We'd love to go. You know, we care. But is the product there? Um, they'll go to asset managers and say, you know, what can we invest in? We've got this money. Where's the fund that can go in? The, the nature positive fund, the clean energy fund, um, which we, we do have clean energy funds. Um, but uh, a lot of that product has not been developed yet. And some of that is just because um, of, you know, the data, the, 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 you know, the data and the scoring uh, isn't there yet. So, for example, how can you sort of tell that a company you're investing in is doing good for the world? There's a whole bunch of metrics we just don't really know. And there's sort of actually the EU's developing this taxonomy at the moment that's going to sort of tell you what is a green investment um, so that you can be sure that when you invest in a fund, that it is actually going to have a positive impact. Because there's a lot of funds out there right now that will say, you know, this is a lovely green fund um, and you're investing in Shell um, or a BP. And yes, they may have like a strategy, a corporate strategy to transition. But I think you'd be pretty upset if you realized that you were investing um, in a green fund and you ended up investing in fossil fuels. So, but that is actually what's happening right now. And so there's just like this, this sort of mismatch between what we actually need and what we have in terms of funds and products at the moment. And a lot of it, I say, is just, there's just not enough good stuff happening, sadly, I hate to say it, to really sort of justify filling green funds with at scale needed pension funds, at least. Right. So, yes, it, it's uh, that gap between the nascent technology and uh, small companies that are bringing that, those ideas kind of to market and publicly traded companies. So those very small companies that are on these breakthrough technologies, how do we get funding to them who are, who are probably the ones that are most uh, capable of uh, starting this uh, green revolution? Yeah, yeah. There, there is a pension fund company in the UK that actually does invest in early stage um, companies. So it's called Legal and General, and actually they they operate in the states as well. Um, but they have like an enormous, enormous pension funds. They 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 manage the pensions of you know millions of British people at least, <laughs> probably more than that. But um, and uh, but they they use their own balance sheet to invest in early stage clean tech, um, uh, uh, energy efficient buildings, um, social housing, not just, it's not just clean energy, but it's also sort of on the social side. Um, and once, you know, once that gets up to a stage, that investment where then they can, you know, get to a level where the risk has gone, where you can actually take pension fund holders money and invest. That's what they do. They sort of come up from the bottom with this, um, higher risk um, and higher return capital they can from the balance sheet and then come in at the other end once it's got up to a certain place with the pension fund money, which is great because it means if you're a pension fund holder, you are making money out of investing uh, in the clean revolution and not just in some sort of passive fund that's making just a, you know, a small amount of money. There's a really innovative way that they work both on, on both sides to your point. So getting in like private equity at the beginning um, but then also coming in with that large sort of billion dollar fund at the end. So, um, and I've not seen it happen anywhere else, actually. They're the only company uh, I've seen do that as a pension fund manager. Well, clearly the money is necessary to, to make uh, this work and, and uh, moving capital to the needs of society is, is the, uh, the task at hand. And uh, you know, unfortunately, our, our current system is it 
isn't uh, doing it very effectively. I mean, there have been some successes and, and we've seen some companies that are greener take off, but I don't believe there's enough uh, op- opportunities right there, right now, as you were saying. And, and uh, what are we going to do to kind of further encourage that, uh, the growth of those smaller companies that are bringing, bringing these ideas of, um, you know, carbon net carbon zero um, to, to the forefront. Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, it's just the way the system is set up. So we have, um, you know, financial institutions have regulations uh, for good reason, because our money's tied up in them, which means they can't uh, invest in certain things. So there's, there's sort of risk weighted assets that they have to sort of maintain. Um, so it it just means that, you know, is there a way, and, and people are discussing this at the moment, is there a way of changing the risk weightings for banks if um, if it's green investment? Could governments, again, provide some sort of guarantee um, so that, you know, you and I don't, don't lose all our money if our bank invests in some early stage, those small green company that doesn't make it? I mean, it's, it's a real tricky one, isn't it? You know, what we need is just more of that early stage capital coming through that can actually have the appetite for risk. And everyone says, well, why aren't banks doing it? Why aren't investors doing it? Well, they can't. They have a fiduciary duty to, you know, you and me who have our money with them. They can't just take our money and just put it in high risk investments. We'd go mad. So it's um it's like a real sort of how do you sort of how do you develop that higher risk appetite uh in, in sort of that finance with a higher risk appetite? It's 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 a hard, it's hard, you know. Which is why so many companies never make it. I guess uh, one of the things that uh, is a question for you, and I think a question for all of us, is how do we each take responsibility with our finance? Finances, where are we putting our money on deposits? Where where's our retirement fund being invested? Where's our savings being invested? Uh, how can we? use the, this uh, money and invest it wisely, make smart decisions, because obviously we don't want to lose our money, but also uh, put it in a, in a fund that is more conscious and more concerned about uh, environmental problems. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, to be honest, you know, we can recycle and fly less frequently and ride a bike and eat less meat and you know, give up the weed killer and stop worrying about our perfect lawn. And we should do all those things. Absolutely. The one biggest thing you can ever do for climate is put your money in somewhere that is sustainable. Like is to think about, as you say, where is my money on deposit? Um, is my bank investing in local businesses, green businesses? Is it a B Corp bank, a credit union, a community bank? Or is it lending out to those large corporates, you know, which... Um, may or may not be doing good things for the world. And where is my pension fund invested, my retirement savings? Where is my savings invested? And we just don't ask ourselves these questions. We don't ask, like, what's our money doing overnight when it's on deposit? When I get paid at the beginning of the month or uh, by every two weeks in the US, I guess. <laughs> um, what's that money doing? It's just sat there in a bank. I'm not using it for you know, another week or so. Where is it going? Like, we need to answer these questions. And unfortunately, there are sort of, services available now where you can start checking like mighty deposits is one you can go on there you can check through your bank you can just see who where is it investing 
um, where, where's my money on deposit going to? Is it going to um, communities of color? Is it going to uh, female entrepreneurs? Is it going to green businesses? Like the things you know you care about and you want to see, is it going to businesses near me? Um, or is it going to businesses, huge corporates in a different state? You know, we want to know that. And I think it's, um, so yeah, totally. It's like that, that question needs to be asked of ourselves all the time. Like, where is my money? Right. And I I think that I read some fascinating books uh, and articles about uh, local investing, which you just discussed. And I I think it's uh, really fascinating what can be done if a community pulls together and puts their money uh, and invests it locally and kind of makes more local decisions. Because I think most of us uh, end up putting our money in uh, entities that are national and have a very wide reach and have very little concern for where we live. And I think um, making some decisions to put some money locally helps, uh, helps our local community, has, gives us more autonomy because then the bankers or finance places that we put our money actually might listen to, to the local community. Yeah. And then on the plus side, you know, as you invest in your local community, your property price will go up and your schools will improve. And and so will the services around you. It's like a win win. It's, you know, why wouldn't we just be investing if we can in our communities? So I'm all for bring back old fashioned community banks. And we lost a lot of them. Um, (laughs) But I'm all for it. Credit unions. Yeah, it's something that. it seems a bit old fashioned and quaint in our, in our modern society, but it, it really has a lot of social utility um, and kind of like a, a democracy because our, our, our democracies depend upon kind of a healthy local component. And we have, we've gone to these mega banks who are just disconnected from their communities for the most part. So, uh, You've been listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. Again, my guest, Helen Avery, Director of Nature Programs at the Green Finance Institute. We've been talking about uh, finance and why it's so important to creating a zero uh, carbon economy and a green industrial revolution. So uh, we'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. I'm Matt Mattern. And... Our guest today, Helen Avery, Director of Nature Programs at the Green Finance Institute, uh, talking about banking and and why it's so important to to the environmental issues that we're facing. And, you know, we were just talking about some of the small banking ideas. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the larger banks that you're working with and and how you're able to uh, work with them and develop new programs that uh, can help the environment. Yeah, sure. It's, I mean, it's really interesting to sort of see the evolution of the thinking of the larger banks um, over over the years. Um, you know, when I was a, a financial journalist and sort of working with the banks after the the financial crash, you know, it was just if you compare sort of their outlook today com- compared to how it was pre crash, it um, it's, it's it's like night and day. And that's, I always think that's because there have been people within those banks really pushing from change from within. There's just been some real sort of pioneers in every one of the large banks that I've seen who've just sort of never given up. And then they've sort of 
um, grown teams around them who really just want to move finance for good. Uh, and they've managed to sort of convince ultimately their senior, <laughs> their senior leaders and eventually the CEOs. Or sometimes it comes from top down. So there's a lot of good things happening at the, the large banks and, you know, um, and, and as you mentioned, sort of we work with some of them around what their best practices are and what they recommend uh, to you. So sort of changing their policies so they're not investing in Arctic drilling, for example, um, uh, or uh, committing to uh, give more capital towards or more allocate more capital towards investing in green investments or social investments. There's a lot of that, that happening. And we are seeing a lot more, you know, tone from the top, the CEOs sort of coming out and talking more. Um, specifically about the importance of, of nature and climate change and sort of uh, moving their businesses to align with that. So, you know, whether it's JP Morgan or Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, um, City, um, uh, there is a lot of change happening. And one thing I would just say is that, you know, never forget that if you are, I know we were talking earlier about sort of move, move bank to a, to, a, <laughs> to a bank that really cares, but um, the power of you as a deposit um, uh, sort of a current account owner at bank is incredible. Um, I, I don't know if you remember, but back when um, it was the Dakota Access Pipeline and City, I think we're going to finance it or they were involved in some financing and lots of people who banked at cities like um, protested again and again and again and caused such a fuss that City stopped financing that pipeline. And I remember interviewing them at the time and them saying, you know, this is this is why we did it, because of the pressure that we had on us. So the, uh, it's sort of you can be in it and then fight from within <laughs> you know, by putting pressure on your own bank to make it make a change. Or you just get out and uh, let them figure it out themselves and, and, and bank with someone. Else. So I think um, as someone a bit greener. So, uh, you know, I, I think banks are sort of wary now to the pressure of their own customers and their employees, you know, people want to work for companies that make them feel good. They don't want to work for companies that are you know, ruining the planet. So um, I'm not sure that answers your question, Matt, but uh, there's a lot going on. <laughs> no, that's that's great. And uh, I think that uh, so for some of our listeners who aren't as uh, attuned to banking and I'm not a banking expert, my understanding is that a bank can, can lend out maybe 10 times or 12 times as much as they have on deposit or more. So if you've got on deposit $100,000, they might be able to lend a million or a million two or more so that there's a lot of leverage there. They're able to make a lot of money off of a fairly modest amount of money that you might have deposited or we might have deposited. Yeah. And your small amount of money might be being lent at a large amount to someone you don't want it to be lent to. <laughs> so it's something to be wary of. Yeah, sure. Right. Or they're making, in terms of interest rate, uh, lending it out at maybe credit card rates and you're getting, you know, one or two percent. So the 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 amount of profit that they can make off of uh, your deposits are pretty substantial. So they like you said, uh, they will listen if we if we say, hey, this isn't uh, yeah. proper. But again, it goes back to being conscious enough to knowing what your bank is doing. And I, I think uh, myself included, probably don't look as carefully at the banking institutions that I bank with and, and hold them to account and say, hey, I don't, I don't want to be with a bank that's investing in uh, coal or heavy polluting um, industries. 
Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And there are lists out there. Uh, uh, bank track, for example, you can have a look at that and it'll tell you who the biggest banks are for financing fossil fuels. And um, there is some big US retail bank names in there. So uh, that's called bank track and bank track. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a great tool for the listeners to take a look at that along with the mighty deposits. Um, there was a, uh, a banking concept uh, aspiration um, and we were talking about that earlier and maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit about that and, and why that uh, seems like a pretty good concept. Yeah, um, it's a it's a great bank, and I wish I'd banked with them when I was living in the states, to be honest. Um, but it's essentially they are a, a bank that is looking to, you know, one not make so much profit out of you uh, for a start, where you can um, determine your own fees. Um, but also, my understanding is that um, if you bank with Aspiration, uh, if it sort of advises you if you want to. And you know, if you want to pop into Right Aid or CVS, it will tell you which one of those has a better human rights record, or uh, pays its uh, um, or, um, pays its employees better, or maybe is is has a sort of greener um, ambition than the other. So you can sort of help determine where you're going to spend your money, which is always helpful. Um, and then also, um, I know that I, I'm not sure where they are now in their journey, but they were looking at. Uh, um, sort of putting your deposits to use in a way that goes into community, into sort of uh, social, solving social issues or lending to people um, or lending to, for example, CDFIs, um, community development financial institutions, which um, are you know developed to support um, low to moderate income families. For example, so you always know that your money is doing, is doing well there. So it was, they, they was kind of the first I sort of, felt like to sort of break that mold. I don't know if there are more now um, that have followed in the shoes of uh, Aspiration. There's a, a bank in the UK, it's a European bank called Triodos actually, but the UK branch, um, it's it's really neat. It has like an amazing um, ethos, but it will, you can invest like a community lending in um, things like your local YMCA uh, that wants to expand or it's uh, a fisherman who's developed like sonar pingers that repel dolphins from his nets. You can invest in his business. They'll go out and source these community investments for you. So you actually know, well, my God, I can invest. It's, you know, the due diligence has been done by my bank. I can invest, you know, a hundred pounds of my money or a hundred dollars, whatever you like, uh, in this business at a small return. And I know I'm, I'm doing something in my community. So there's lots of things like that starting to happen at banks. Um, sadly, not at large banks uh, still, but um, but yeah, I, actually, I don't know how big Aspiration is now. Perhaps, perhaps you know they're out your way. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, you know, again, we're talking about uh, ways that all of us can be more conscious about where we're investing our money and where we're putting our money because and holding our financial institutions to a higher standard. And, and there are uh, financial institutions out there that are doing good work. So we should be putting our money with those financial institutions that are most consciously trying to get our economy to zero carbon, to a zero carbon economy, to fund a green industrial revolution, which quite frankly means new new jobs and, and uh, an economy that isn't a poor economy. It's it's an economy that just isn't as dirty of an economy. 
Can you can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the data is out. You're not going to lose money by investing in sustainable investments. If anything, you're actually probably going to make a little bit more money than you would if if you um, if you don't. So um, it's uh, it's kind of a win all the way around. Sometimes it, it used to be thought, you know, it was a bit of a trade off. Well, I'll invest in green, so we'll have a cleaner economy, but I'll I'll lose money on it, or or, or certainly won't make as much money. And that's just not the case now. Um, and often, you know, sustainable sustainable businesses pay their debts back faster and are more reliable than businesses that haven't thought about sustainability for, for obvious reasons. They're just sort of more conscious about their business and what's coming down the pike. So um, there's a there's definitely a case for, uh, say, it's sustainable investing. There's a, there's a phrase in the UK, pensions with intentions, um, uh, sort of trying to get everyone to sort of get their pensions into green investments. Call up your pension provider, call up your company HR, and say, "Where's my pension invested? Where's my retirement account going? I want to know and get it moving." Well, it's uh, been fascinating talking with you, Helen. Uh, we've been talking about uh, getting moving capital to the needs of society and and why we need to restructure kind of the way we look at this, because quite frankly, we haven't been pricing in the costs that uh, our economy and our, our planet incurs, and we all incur by making investments into, say, dirty energy, such as coal and fossil fuels that are polluting our countries and our world. Uh, and we need to start thinking about uh, investing into cleaner and greener uh, methods of uh, transportation and energy transmission and generation. And, and I, I applaud the great work that you're doing there over at the Green Finance Institute to, uh, to bring us into this uh, new era. It's, uh, it's great work and, and thanks for doing that. No, thanks. thanks. Thanks to you, Matt. Thanks for getting the message out there and, uh, and for all you do. Thank you. Well, uh, You've been listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, and my guest has been Helen Avery, Director of Nature Programs at the Green Finance Institute. Uh, you can find uh, the Green Finance Institute on the internet, and uh, look forward to having you back on the show at some time in the future.